0: There's no better place to start the beginning of Lent with it, with our great beginning story. And as Richard said, the temptation of Christ is the one of the traditional readings that we have at the beginning of Lent every year, and so is this text there at the beginning of Lent every year. It's one of the most ancient stories that we have, and like all cultures that have an origin story, it's steeped in mystery, and uh, it's not. Straightforward and easy to understand. If you've heard, if you've had the privilege of hearing any Australian Indigenous creation stories, of which there are numbers, uh, they are the same. They're steeped in mystery and they're not sort of linear and, and easy to follow, uh, because they are trying to give voice to something absolutely extraordinary—the existence of the world in which we live. Genesis has uh, at least two. The, if you read Genesis chapter one, it's a completely different creation story than the story we just heard in Genesis chapter two and three. Um, many scholars think there's at least seven creation stories throughout uh, the the book of uh, uh, throughout the early books of the Old Testament that can be teased out. So the ongoing story of how you explain, how you tell what the, how the world got to be the way it is, um, seems to be an ongoing story. And these stories always tell us something about uh, an explanation for the way the world is. What, what is the interconnectedness and yet difference between people we call men and people we call women? Well, the story, the bit that Richard missed out that's not in the lectionary reading, is the story of Eve being made out of a rib from Adam's body, which is a way of talking about the fact that we are exactly the same and very different as different parts of the human uh, experience of the world. And the the story we read is the story that gives us some explanation of how is it possible that human beings have the capacity for extraordinary goodness and extraordinary badness, that we do in fact have knowledge of good and bad or good and evil opens the whole story up and, and tries to explain some of these things to us. Well, the first thing we have to remember of this story, the whole basis of it, is that it's in a garden. It's a wonderful creation story, a wonderful idea that the whole purpose of the world is to be a garden. Not a desert, not an ocean, not a mountain, but a garden. And a garden seems to be the kind of place that we actually don't mind being in. In fact, many of us spend a lot of our energy making the block of land on which we live or the patch of land out in front of where we are into a garden because it's important to us not only because it can feed us but because it can give us joy and peace and there's something about pottering around in the garden that changes the way you feel about yourself and the world that you've had to endure that day. But not only is it a garden but the Garden of Eden appears to be uh, and some of the the... the writings interpret it this way as an orchard it's a cultivated place it's a place of order and who doesn't want to live in a world of order rather than a world of chaos where anything could go wrong at any time the idea of the world originally being designed as a beautiful garden an orchard of of, of design and order where we belong is an extraordinary beginning. What a wonderful idea of the way the world ought to be, the beginnings of everything. And we not only have a garden, but we have a purpose within it. It's this extraordinary idea that, that um, the Lord God took the man, the human being, because that's what the word Adam means, it means the human, and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Or, or better to serve it and to keep it. To serve it, it is different than controlling it, but to serve it, if you've got a vegetable garden, it does sometimes feel, particularly when the weeds are growing, that you're serving the garden rather than the garden serving you. Eventually you might get some tomatoes if you do it all right, but if you don't do it right, you don't get anything and it, so it's you serving the garden, constantly tilling the soil, loving it, caring for it, paying attention to what's going wrong and doing the, the right thing to make it, it, it nurture. Now, what a different world it would be if we understood ourselves to be serving the creation within which we live. And keeping it is to, is like uh, keeping, not as in I own it, I'm keeping this car, I'm keeping this house for mine but keep in the the old uh, way of understanding the word that you look after it, you protect it or guard it, you keep it safe again, what an extraordinary idea that it it is that we're given into a world that is our job to serve it and to keep it safe and to protect it and to guard it again, what a different conversation we'd be having now about our climate Had we taken that really seriously all through the the, the time? It's not what we own, it's what we serve. It's not what we control, it's what we protect and look after. So in the context of this glorious place, this glorious beginning, what's the meaning of this test that's right in the middle of this story? We're invited to eat freely. Easy to miss that word, but that's part of the original. We're invited to eat freely of everything, just to live in freedom. Except, don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from the tree that is the knowledge of good and bad. Now, good and bad here is not morality. It's the exactly the same word used for good as was used in the first chapter of Genesis, in the, in the first creation story, where at the end of each moment of creation, God saw it and said it was good. And it's good in the sense that it functions. It, it operates properly. It just does what it's supposed to do. If you've got a, a, a complicated piece of machinery and it's all working and, and sounding right, that's good, it's that kind of goodness. So the tree of the knowledge of good and bad is the tree of the knowledge of the way things should be and the way things could be if they're not the way they should be. It's the knowledge of the garden as the orchard, as the place to be served and to live in freely. And it's the knowledge of what happens if you don't. It's, in a sense, the knowledge of everything. And that knowledge is important. We can't live in ignorance. We might say ignorance is bliss, and it is if you're three, but you can't live that way if you're 30 it's wonderful to see children not con- giving a moment's thought about the future, but living in the moment. It's one of the great joys of being with children is that they we can absorb some of that, but we know we can't be that, not anymore, because we know that there are consequences. We know that there is organisation that's required. We know that life is a lot more than just living happily in that little moment. So, in one sense, this story is wanting us to understand what does it mean to have the knowledge of good functionality, the way the world could be, and the opposite of that. What does that actually look like? Because, you see, in the story, the snake, the serpent, tells the truth. He kind of embellishes some of the story. Didn't God say you shouldn't eat anything? And Eve picks up on that and says, "Well, no, um, we're not supposed to eat or even touch the tree, which God didn't actually say." But you know, they, you can see this is already being embellished in this story. It's, there's a kind of a lot of manoeuvring. I always, often think about this story as two boxes circling each other in a ring, looking for advantage. But the snake does say, No, if you eat it, you won't die. And they did eat it. And they didn't die. Not on the day, I think as the translation that Richard read, on that very day you will die. They they didn't die. The snake was telling the truth. But maybe something does something does disconnect because their life then, then begins becomes hard they're told that the earth is going to be difficult to get any food out of and we know that to be true. That when women are in childbirth it's going to be painful and dangerous and we know that that's true. That's an experience that we have had all through the time that human beings have been alive. So something does happen. And I wonder if what what we're being invited to imagine here is that Yes, we can't live in ignorance. We do need to develop an understanding of what is good and what is not. That if you're free, it seems really good to have ice cream for breakfast. Might seem like that for you now. Um, I, I don't know. You don't have to tell me, but but you can only do it for a couple of days before it seems really bad because your tummy hurts. And then you can, as you grow up a little bit, you can connect the fact that your tummy's hurting with the fact that you ate ice cream for three break. You know, like, that's the learning. And we need to do that. And if you don't teach the people, in the small people in your life that story, you're not being a good carer. So we know all of that. Maybe what this story wants us to know is that there are no shortcuts to the wisdom that Eve said she wanted, which is a different thing than knowledge of good and bad. She wanted wisdom and this fruit seemed really attractive. Of course it's attractive. Do you mean there's a pill that I could take that would make me incredibly wise? All I've got to do is take it? Now the internet is full of things like that. All you need to do is this small thing and either you won't have erectile dysfunction anymore if you're a man, those are all over the internet or you uh, spend this small amount of time every day doing this thing and you'll make an enormous amount of money. All you need to do is... So the idea of a shortcut hasn't gone away. We're desperate for it. Or all you've got to do is spend a couple of bucks on this ticket and there's a very good chance you will will win a million dollars. Now, it's true there is a chance... I'm not sure it's a very good one, but there is a chance. And we all want that, the shortcut. But maybe there isn't a shortcut to knowledge of what is good and what is bad. That develops over time, and it's hard won. Most of us have learned all kinds of lessons in our life about what damage we can do to ourselves if we do certain things. and And if we've grown in wisdom at all, we've learnt to do those things not at all or at least a little less to ourselves and to other people. That if we want to have decent, loving relationships with the people around us, there are things that we don't do and there are things that we ought to do. And I often spend time talking with, with, or used to m- much more talking with couples who were struggling in their relationship to discover often in the men, and, and I'm sad to say this as a, as a man, Not a clue as to how to be with that other person. They know how to do man things. They can fix stuff. They can bring in money when they go to work and if if they can get work and if they can't they feel terrible about themselves. But the idea that there's more to that relationship that they've got to be differently present and think through what does this look like, this moment to the person I love? What would it look like from that person's point of view? Those kinds of knowledges of good, what is good, what is functional, what is real and what isn't, they're sometimes missing. And that in almost every case where a relationship falls apart, it's about some of those sorts of things that that's missing. And But those things can be found, but they're hard won and they take a long time. They take most of life. That's why we don't expect wisdom in three-year-olds. And we hope for it in 80 year olds and 90 year olds and there's some wisdom in this room just because you're old doesn't make you wise but it's hard to be wise if you're not old because you haven't had enough time to learn these things you can't take the fruit or the pill or the ticket and instantly become this it's a long journey which we're invited into and to talk about this at the beginning of Lent which itself is this journey of 40 days It's always a journey that we have to take. And much of the time on a journey, you don't quite know where you're going or what you're doing. You spend more time unsure than you do sure. But that's the learning. That's part of the story. It's important. And I think this story, amongst all the other things it's talking about, and there have been books and sermons written about this since we first heard of it uh, all those thousands of years ago, but at least one of the small things that's being said is that the story, that the journey to the knowledge of good and evil, which is essential to being human, is hard one. It takes a while. And you can't do it by yourself. There's at least got to be two of you. And it turns out a lot more than two, because they had children, and one of them already fought with the other, Cain and Abel. That deep story of, of pain and, and, and despair and jealousy that is so much locked into the heart of what it means to be human as well as all the other things. But at the least, takes two people. In other words, it cannot be done alone. We have to have community. And so the story begins, Adam and Eve together, they go out of the garden, it gets hard, they multiply, and we have the experience now of how difficult it is to make community work, how hard it is to be one people. But that's the story we're being invited into all the time through Lent, in that journey. And never to forget that at the heart of it, is the great story of the garden, of the orchard, of being being able to eat freely, to be able to live and love openly with each other in an extraordinary environment that God is drawing us to in every moment. And people have said that the church ought to look as close as anything in the community like the Garden of Eden looked a place of cultivated joy and freedom, a place where everyone flourishes, a place of order. Most of the time we're a long way from that. But that's the dream. That's what we're being called to all the time, even in the middle of Lent. Yeah.